Well, Pastor, don't feel bad about the numbers. I've been noted to uh, hold up three fingers and say I have two more points to make, so you don't have to worry about that. I should say it's 23 grandchildren, not 32. Um, (laughs) It's up there, though. Uh, Well, this is uh, uh, great fun for me, and I mentioned that uh, good friends with Dave and Judy MacDonald, and I... I was uh, best man at David's wedding, which was about 50 years ago, and he was best man at my wedding. We're going to have a 50th wedding anniversary this year in May, so I can keep, I, we go back actually beyond that, and uh, we were old buddies, we were uh, high school buddies, even college buddies for a short time, but I, I just want to tell you, you know, you've heard of Ferris Bueller's Excellent Day. Well, Dave and I had the original Excellent Day a long time ago. When uh, we got in his Plymouth, which had a little uh, whirlwind pinstriped on the side and said El Chabasco, which means whirlwind, and uh, we took off and decided we'd have a great day, and so we were living in La Mirada, California. We got up early in the morning, we went down to Laguna Beach, and we went body surfing, and we got ourselves dried off, and we drove over the Cajon Pass and found uh, a dry lake bed, and we had our 22s, and we shot some bottles off, and then we take that Plymouth and go as fast as you could and just throw that thing and so spin donuts out in the dry lake bed. And then we drove back down to Long Beach and went down uh, Balboa Boulevard to a theater down there and watched a movie with a bunch of sailors. So that was our excellent day off. Uh, we were young once. Great to have the, uh, I see a lot of students here uh, along with everybody else, and it's great because I think what we're going to be talking about today will be very helpful. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to the 29th chapter of Jeremiah. And uh, as you're looking there, let me begin by saying that I will never forget the, the day and the night that I candidated at College Church in Wheaton to become senior pastor of the church. Now, if you don't know what candidating is, it's where you come in and preach and people listen to you, and after that they vote and decide whether they want to call you as pastor. So it's it's kind of preaching for your life type of thing. It was over three decades ago, August 5th, 1979, and uh, I was a Californian going to the Midwest or wanted to go to the Midwest to be called to this church, and I didn't know anything about Midwest weather. So I got up that morning to preach, and it was hot and humid. I mean, Chicago humid in August. And uh, I got through that morning, okay, didn't have air conditioning in church, an old colonial Georgian building. That night, when I came back to church, it had been heating up all day long, preparing to storm. So you've got about 98% humidity about 95 degrees, the sky's kind of green looking. And uh, so I go back into the church, and, and I'm feeling a little nervous about things, obviously preaching for my life. The other thing is I talked to my kids that afternoon, and they had, I'd asked them that week before what I ought to preach on. They said, why don't you preach X sermon? It was out of Luke 8. It was about the woman with the issue of blood. It had good uh, application and so on. But they told me it wasn't the sermon. It was a story about one of their friends they liked. They wanted to hear the story again. And I was thinking, so I'm preaching on this text because you like that story. I'm preaching for my life because you like that story. So I was sweating appropriately and I walked in the door. 
Then the other thing is, is when I looked down the front row, I saw three couples that I had heard about and read about and never met till that weekend. I won't go through a long description of them, but there was Ken Taylor, who is the guy that, um, well, the living Bible is his thing. So Mr. Bible was sitting there and with his wife. And there were a couple other people, a, a man that... Uh, wrote a lot and had a kind of prophetic ministry in the name of Joe Bailey, like a prophet, Mr. Prophet and his wife sitting there, and this missionary statesman's wife, and I, here I am preaching for my life, and I'm looking at these people, and I'm thinking, oh my, what am I doing here? I mean, that's how I felt. And now i got this text in front of me, which I'm not sure I should be preaching on. Well, you hide it. I mean, you know how to do it. You just smile like the guy in the Quaker Oats box, and Look calm, no matter how you're feeling. So my text was announced. I got up to preach. And guess what? On this hot, hot day, it began to storm. And the windows were open. The fans were on me. It started to rain so hard, it was hard to hear me. I was raising my voice to be heard and then it began to thunder and lightning, and then all of a sudden there was a simultaneous clap of thunder and a lightning bolt right at the same time. And the college church fire alarm went off right in the middle of my candidating sermon. And it's not, it was not a bell, it's not like a school buzzer, it's like a diesel horn in a truck. The thing went off right above my head. Honk! I stepped back. People gasped. My daughter, Holly, who was just a young teenager, jumped to her feet. She, she was sure it was a tornado warning. I mean, we're in Chicago. It's not that far from Kansas. She'd seen the Wizard of Oz. She knew what could happen. And um, uh, the presiding pastor, uh, I stepped back. He got in front of me. He said, folks, we have a ionization fire alarm here, and Lightning has evidently struck close by. I'll go take care of things. And he left and turned it back over to me. And so I got up and continued sweating and preaching on the woman with the issue of blood. And the deacons couldn't figure that fire alarm out. And it went off with 23 more blasts before I finished my sermon. I know because I have it on tape. <laughs> Unbelievable. And all that stress and all that heat and everything that's going on, I sweat so much that I sweat through the top of my shoulder pads. I was just wringing wet. And then we went down the basement. They'd, it had flooded in the basement. They'd squeegeed it out, and I could feel the water come up through the soles of my shoes. I was just absolutely wet, and I'm shaking hands with people. And uh, people are coming through and getting a cup of coffee, and I'm standing there, and I'll say, Nice meeting you. And I'd say under my breath, I won't be seeing you again. <laughs> nice meeting you. And say that to myself. So I, thought, I thought God was saying, you need to stay home. You're a California boy. Stay home. Well, that's not what God thought. Because they voted a week later, and they voted to call me to college church. And the guy that called me on the phone on the public committee said, you want to know why we called you? I said, yeah. He said, any man that can call down fire from heaven can pastor this church. 
And that began my ministry all those years ago. Now, what I want to say, I tell a story because new beginnings in the pastorate are oftentimes sort of traumatic. For instance, if you don't know the congregation here, you're called to be pastor, you see all the faces, everybody looks nice, but you don't know what's behind those faces. If you've got kids, you don't know whether they're going to really fit in the youth group or make friends. Uh, You've just preached a couple of silver bullets, your best, but now they're going to hear the regular stuff. Are they going to like it? I mean, all those things be running through your head. And they ran through my head as I'd moved my family 2,000 miles back to Chicago and rolled them in school and began pastoring this, this church, which just had its 150th anniversary. I mean, it's got an institutional history you wouldn't believe. And I was feeling all those things. My wife knew it. Most people didn't know it. But the guy who had recommended me for the job named Bob Knowles, who was the West Coast representative of Wheaton College, and that's why he knew about this opening, came back into town. He'd been a pastor. He knew what was going through my mind, and so he took me out to a local restaurant. After a few niceties, he leaned across the table and he said, Kent, I want to share a text with you that has meant so much to Renee, his wife, and me over the years. And he opened his Bible to Jeremiah, the 29th chapter, and he read these verses, this verse in verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not calamity to give you a future and a hope. That's Jeremiah 29, 11. And then dear Bob Knowles, across that scripture, encouraged me by saying, Whatever happened to me, whether I considered to be the severity of God or the goodness of God, his plans for for my well-being and not for evil. And I took it to heart. In those early years, it became a mainstay of my life. I'm thrilled to have as many uh, student-type people here this morning because you may not know this text, but what a great thing to hear this text now and uh, have it in your life and begin to understand it because what I'm going to be preaching to you this morning is the Word of God. And it is truth for you and it is truth for all of us. 2012, we're well into it, is will contain new beginnings for everyone, new situations, new distresses, new joys, new problems, Uh, new resolutions, all of those things. And this text is for people that face ever-unfolding new beginnings, a new situation. It's everyone here. It's meant to assure us of God's goodness to us, regardless of what's going on. Now, here's the context. This is the book of Jeremiah. It's uh, an exilic book. It was written to the Jews, Israel, on the eve of the Babylonian captivity when they're going to go down into, in, they're going to go to, to uh, Babylon for 70 years. Great difficulty and great stress in a new place. They're God's covenant people. They're people who were, are, he's calling to faithfulness. Well, as believers who have faith in Christ, uh, faith in the Lord of the universe, and share in the new covenant 
we're in continuity with them, and so what applies to them applies in principle to us as people of faith, redeemed by Christ under the blood of the new covenant. It's for us. And we're going to look at the text. First in verse 11, we're going to see God's plans for His people, us. And then secondly, we're going to look at the condition of those plans in verses 12 and 13. Now, the opening phrase in verse 11 For I know the plans I have for you. I hope you're looking at it. That phrase, for I know the plans I have for you, indicates something of the exhaustive, comprehensive scope of his plans. Because the word for I there is emphatic in the original language. I, the Lord. And so the sense is this. You may not know the plans I have for you. You may think no one else knows, but I, emphatic, God, know the plans I have for you. In other words, as you come to new situations and new challenges and new problems and new woes and new sorrows, and His plans are unknown to us, they are perfectly known and hidden in Him. Uh, the Lord said to Isaiah in Isaiah 55, 9, He said to Isaiah, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And then the psalmist said to God, Psalm 77, 19, Your paths, God, Your way was in the sea, your paths in the mighty waters, and your footprints may not be known. So when God's ways are inscrutable, we don't know what they are. They're hidden to us. He knows. I, God, know the plans I have for you. So right at the beginning of the Babylonian captivity, when these people are going to be taken down into Babylon, he says, I your God, know the plans that I have for you. And when he says that, the scope of him being God saying this, because of the doctrine of God, we understand that those plans are eternally conceived plans. Ephesians 1, 1 through 4, talks about those eternally conceived plans, that they are older than the Himalayas, they're older than the earth. They are eternal plans. But paradoxically, because He's God, they are also continual plans because the way the the text reads is that I know the plans that I'm planning for you. So they are eternal, but they are continual. An amazing thing. Rooted in the deepest intimacy of knowing us. Now you know that Jesus tells us, this is in the 10th chapter of Matthew, verse 30, that he numbers the hair on our heads. So that uh, if you're young, he knows a whole lot about you. A little older, he knows less and less. And some around here, he may not even know you someday. (laughs) 
That's, a, that's an amazing thing. What I'm emphasizing, if, he, if, if this is true, which it is true, if he knows the number of hairs on our heads, then the computation changed this morning when you took a shower. Right? I mean, that is massive knowledge of you and a great comfort. My wife was once a patient at Mayo Clinic, and we stayed in the home of a woman by the name of Margie Hack, who would take care of host people that were staying at Mayo Clinic. Later, Margie sent out a, a letter to us, and she contained this, this about one of her guests of Mayo. She said about the woman, she said, she is Asian, diminutive, lovely. She has breast cancer. And then she said, during chemotherapy, she lost all her shining black hair in three days. It began in the shower. She pulled it out by the handful. Looking at it in wonder, she ran to her family saying, look at this. God knows me. All my numbers have fallen. Like the Dow Jones. And then Margie added this comment, what a strange comfort this is. My hair is numbered. The intimate knowledge of God for us. And I have to say strange indeed, strangely beautiful. It's unearthly. Your hair is numbered. The point of that is, there's never been an action on God's part that is separate from his intimate knowledge of you and your circumstances. Nothing is apart from that. And that means that fate has never determined what will happen to you. As a believer, you are not subject to fate. And his plans are continually towards us. They are so exhaustive. It's such a wonderful thing that they're eternal, they're continual, and really in the, and I put it in the wonder of the Godhead, they are also settled. He's made up his mind. He's not going to change his mind. Now, when you assemble all that that is in the phrase, for I know the plans I have for you, it means this one thing. His plans are adequate For every person here, you need to believe that. Do you know that if you're sitting here right now and you say, I do believe that, that can change your life. Where you just rest in that. Believe it with all your hearts. How he, God, bends but never breaks. When our good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses, and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. Now, when you take that to heart, it brings you to the kind of peak of this great text, and I hope that you're all hearing this. The text reads, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for welfare and not for calamity. 
Now, that word welfare, plans for welfare and not calamity, or welfare and not evil, that word for welfare is the word shalom, which means wholeness, well-being, peace. You translate it all those ways. I actually think it would have been good for the translators to just put that in there, the translated literated word, because shalom is such a freighted biblical word, wholeness and peace. But that is what he's saying. My plans for every one of my children in covenant with me are for shalom and not for evil. And as a true child of God, there is not an exception in this room anywhere. Nobody is an exception. All his plans for you are for shalom and not evil. He can have no evil thoughts towards you. God never had an evil thought towards you, and he never will. There was an old uh, commentator writing back years ago that put it in just the best terms. Speaking of God, he said, His plans concerning his people are always thoughts of good, of blessing. Even if he, that is God, is obliged to use the rod, it is not the rod of wrath, but the Father's rod of discipline for their earthly and eternal welfare. And then he really winds it up. He says, There is not a single item of evil in his plans for his people, neither in their motive, nor in their conception, nor in their revelation, nor in their consummation. He's never had it, and he never will. Now, if you're listening closely, you're going, well, wait a moment. Bad things happen. Hard things happen. Well, he's not saying that you don't have hard things. You never have things that are even calamity. And let me just step back and say, I am the grandfather of 23 grandchildren. And two years ago, on October 23rd, I was sitting in my study arranging my books. It was raining, and I got a call from my daughter Holly. She says, uh, Caroline has been hit by a car. We need to get to the hospital. And I went to the hospital and sat down with a doctor who said, she's not going to make it, she's not going to survive. And my 19-year-old granddaughter had been walking down the street just graduated from high school, walking down the street on the sidewalk when an old man about my age had a heart attack at the wheel, pressed the accelerator, hit her from behind, and killed her outright. How about that? That's a tough thing. But I can tell you that Caroline Noel Hoke is with the Lord, and she got there so fast. And with no fear, even. I remember her father standing over her um, pink casket and saying, 19 years ago, God gave us this charge. We have fulfilled our charge, and Caroline is in heaven. It's been tough. There have been a lot of tears, but I can tell you for my, my family, my daughter and her husband and her siblings and for all of us, God's plan are always for good. 
or shalom. And we're going to see it when it all works out. We need to believe that. Even the apparent evil we suffer is with an eye to wholeness. Malcolm Muggeridge, who some of you older ones will know, wrote in his 20th century testimony. It's incredible. He said, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness. In other words, if it were ever possible to eliminate affliction from our earthly existence by means of some drug... As Algis Huxley envisioned, the result would not be to make life delectable, good, but to make it too banal, that is, too plain and trivial, to be endurable. Now, what he was saying, implying is this, without affliction, without hardship, without failures, without sorrows, we would be trivial, superficial, flat-sided people without any depth or substance. In fact, we wouldn't even be interesting. That's a life-changing revelation if you take it to heart. You know, my own experience, I, uh, my, my father was a World War II Marine vet. He got out of uh, the Marines and was killed in 1946 when I was four years old. And I was raised by a sea of women, you know. But God meant good and shalom by the whole thing. Difficulties in uh, planting a church and great disappointments, all bathed in shalom. Even, even good friends that became detractors, God's goodness toward me still exists. And I want to say that if I'd gone to that church those three decades ago where I candidated, had that incredible experience, and I only lasted six months, it wouldn't change. The shalom and the goodness. I mentioned one of the men that was sitting on that front row, Joseph Bailey, who was the editor of Eternity Magazine, a, a prominent author. And when he came to his final column in Eternity Magazine just in his 60s, uh, he said, Dave, Joe Bailey said, since I've shared the severity of God with my readers, speaking of the deaths of three of his children, the cystic fibrosis, uh, one shortly after birth, one a trauma to an 18-year-old. He said, let me share the goodness of God in this final column. And he recounted God's grace in the lives of his four living children. Uh, Deborah, who works to reclaim kids from the city of Chicago, Tim, who's a pastor, David, who's a pastor, and Nathan, who was a pastor then, is now deceased to cystic fibrosis. But what was so significant were his final words. These are the final words that Joe Bailey ever wrote. He said, Mary Lou and I are aware that all this represents the grace of God, but also for ourselves and our children, the road hasn't ended. Yet we know that both by his severity and by his goodness, God has shown consistent faithfulness. God is good. He is worthy of all trust and all glory. And then a few months later, he died on the operating table at Mayo Clinic. All I can say is 
what Joe Bailey said is amen. Now, there's more here. There's a final aspect of his plans that's given in the final phrase. So you read that, that total verse goes like this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, plans for shalom, and not for calamity, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So when Bob Knowles shared this text with me, and he shared the last part, future and a hope meant that I could be optimistic. There's a future, and there's a hope in this world that all of God's plans for me, and that includes what I just talked about, that sorrow I talked about, were good and are good and will always be good. And they were good for Carolyn Noel Hoke. And that we have a future that goes beyond this world into eternity. And that's when it will all be clear. And, and, I, and I, we all... We all think about this, but can you imagine the first five minutes in heaven when you see the face of Jesus? It'll come into focus. Or the half hour, or the hour, or the day, or the year, if they have years, or the first 10,000 years. Yeah. I think if we could see the end from the beginning, it would change everything. God's word is this, for I know the plans I have for you. My child, plans of shalom and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Now this is true for every child of God here, for every child, true child of God. Now I think that some people experience it more in this life than others. They experience what I would call a subjective reality of it. They own it. They believe it. They rest in it. And I, th I think it is those that not only are children of God, but passionately seek Him. Because the following verses, verses 12 and 13 says, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and, will, and you will seek me and find me, when you search for me with all your heart. That those who passionately love God experience the most of this shalom. It's all there. But they're the ones who know it best and most personally. People who, like King David said in Psalm 42, uh, admonished us, as the deer seeks for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee, O God, my soul thirsts for God, the living God, the soul it seeks. Uh, David said almost the same thing again in Psalm 63, 1. O God, thou art my God, I shall seek thee earnestly. And Jesus has encouraged it to knock and seek because it's going to be opened and you're going to find. And so it's, it's, it's this, this, the reality of this doesn't go to the half-hearted so much in this life, but the whole-hearted, passionate lover of Christ who pursues him will experience that sense of well-being, that peace, shalom, and confidence. Well, 2012, I wouldn't want to know what's ahead for everyone here. Some of you 
are going if you could see what was coming in the next uh, three months would say oh no but I want you to know that the oh no that's out there has to be countered with this because this is God's word for I know the plans I have for you plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope and that we need to passionately pursue him and love him with all of our hearts there's an old well-traveled story that makes a great point stories told of a a wild duck winging its way uh, northward across Europe in the springtime. It comes over Denmark, looks down and sees this uh, Danish barnyard, and there's some tame ducks down there. It's just awesome. He flies down, he settles, leaves the other ones going on, and man, there's grain all over the place and bugs to pick up, and you know, it's just fantastic. Stays there for the day. So good. Stays the next day. That's really good. Stays a week. After about two weeks, he just says to himself, I think I'll just stay here until my mates come back flying southward in the fall. Well, the fall comes. And he hears the call of the wild ducks as they're flying over. And a strange thrill comes to him. His eyes light up and his feathers ruffle and he begins to flap his wings and he rises from the barnyard but alas he's eaten so much that he can't get above the eaves and he falls back into the barnyard and uh, ducks are gone he says oh well this isn't so bad and so he stays there life is safe and the food is good and then every spring and autumn, he would hear those ducks, and there would come that gleam. He hears the call of the wild ducks, and his feathers would ruffle. There came a day when they flew over, and they called out, and he didn't even lift his head. May we never be tamed. So engrossed in things here that we're not looking above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. What I've been preaching this morning is, if you want to put it this way, true truth. I pray for the tender young souls here that you'll hear it. I pray that the old souls will take what they've already heard before and take it to heart again. Because it's not a matter of needing to believe more about God. It's just a matter of believing what we believe. You believe this. Because if you believe it, it'll be your anchor in this world for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans for shalom and not for evil to give you a future and hope this is the word of God Amen let's pray Father I pray that your Holy Spirit who authored this put it in print for a millennia of people to read on this day, this uh, March 4th, 2012, would suit it for the hearts of the people here and sustain them with the truth of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.